Amen. Well, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. Now, this comes right on the heels of what we've seen in the rich young ruler. Okay? Young man coming and legalistically, self-righteously, and self-sufficiently asking the Lord and Savior, what must he do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And we saw that the Lord uses the law, the moral law of God, to somewhat break his legs on the path of righteousness. That he would flee to Christ, who is his righteousness. And on the heels of that, we have a transition here of Peter asking about the rewards that they would have who have forsaken all. And so please, I would ask you to pay attention to the Word of God. Stand if you can as we read it. We're going to attempt to go through verse 27 of chapter 19 to chapter 20, verse 16. And we'll see if that, we will try to do that, okay? Verse 27. This is God's word to us. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my sake, my namesake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But the many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. For the kingdom of heaven is like the master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, You go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers and notice this, pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those who hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those who, those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first last. Please pray with me. Father, uh, this text is, uh, is difficult for me to work through and outline. And God, I just pray that you would do what you promised, God, that you would build your house through your word. I pray that you would help the gospel to be on, on my lips, God, and in our hearts, that we would see the true grace of Jesus Christ in offering rewards to sinners who deserve no such thing, and that we would use them appropriately as good encouragements 
to abandon the world, but also, God, that we would be warned against the deceitfulness of our own hearts, viewing them in a way that's meritorious in, in some fashion. God, please bless us. Help me in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It becomes more and more plain to me as we go through the book of Matthew. The danger that we can have on either side of looking at different biblical texts and interpreting them, especially the narrative portions of the gospel. It is a strong warning and error that we should read this passage in any way that would tell us that by us forsaking houses or lands or property, we somehow merit eternal life in the kingdom of God. This would be the exact same error of this rich young ruler, saying, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? At the same time, we must not see rewards as given in the scripture as anything less than God's grace to sinners, to help weak-minded brothers and sisters, weak-minded and sinful people on their way to obey Him as we ought, but just to have a hope of eternal life in heaven, that we would hold on loosely to the things of this life because of great promises made in the gospel. Jesus here, on the heels of that rich young ruler, He clarifies to Peter that Christians have rewards given to them. And he teaches us to see them in a certain way, to see them as gracious gifts given by a loving Father and not as wages earned. Okay? And that's what I want us to see here today, that we are to be encouraged to sacrificial obedience by the gracious promises of our Father, but we should be warned about having a legal spirit about it. That is viewing rewards in such a way that my accomplishment of certain sanctification or certain duties earns me these rewards. Or my inability and my failings and my sins puts me in somewhat of a a third world ghetto within the kingdom of heaven. We need to be aware of these things because none of these things are the gospel of Jesus Christ nor do they go with them. And so, first and foremost, in verses 27 through 29, I want us to see that we are encouraged to let go of our grip on worldly things, trusting God's promise to reward us. Now, in all the things that we read this morning, I hope you noticed the theme that went throughout in the Psalms of Ascent and in Joel 3. There's a theme throughout the Old and New Testament that the people of God are going to have their rewards and their treasure restored to them. This is something that we look forward to in the new heavens and the new earth. That the people of God, while we lose many things on this earth, we have them restored by God. And the first thing that we have to notice is in Peter's question. As this rich young ruler goes away, Peter turns to his master and thinking about this man, refusing to give up everything he has and sell them. Peter reflects on the fact that the apostles, they did lose everything. They did leave everything to follow after Christ. Now, as we look at Peter's statement, and I'll just remind us of it and read it again, in chapter 19, verse 27, Peter says this, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? 
Now, it's, it's certainly true that Peter might and probably does have some wrong-headed thinking in this question, right? It's possible that Peter, as the older guys would say, had a mercenary attitude towards this, that we've done this, so God, how are you going to pay us back for what we've done? But it doesn't seem that Jesus necessarily takes it that way. And I want us to, first and foremost, say that, notice that there is something truthful about what Peter says here. That the apostles really did suffer loss for following after Christ. And they suffered loss presently. What I mean by that is at the time that Peter spoke to Christ, they truly had suffered at this point. Now, Peter says they have left all and followed him. Now, we shouldn't take this perhaps absolutely, that they sold everything that they had and gave it to the poor. Because we know that Peter still had a wife. Okay? Peter still had a house. In Matthew chapter 8, we see that Jesus goes and heals Peter's mother-in-law. And this is almost certainly at Peter's house. They have a boat. Okay, These are fishermen. And somehow they have a boat that makes them get from point A to point B in the Sea of Galilee. So it's not as if these men are living on the streets, poor and naked and having nothing. But they truly were called to a special sacrifice in Jesus Christ. Something I don't think that we really appreciate. Then Matthew chapter 4 and 9, we see the calling of the apostles, right? And Jesus calls them to follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. These were regular men that had regular vocations in the world. Fishers, tax collectors like Matthew in Matthew chapter 9. And Jesus calls with a radical call to these 12 men specifically to leave your vocations and follow after me. An itinerant preacher to go and spread the gospel to the nation of Israel. Now, we look past that. But in our present circumstance, if anybody was called from their normal vocation to, say, go into missionary service or to join the ministry, we would see that as a, a radical commitment and a lot of losses experienced with that. I mean, if we just consider it, they forsook their vocations. And with that, they, they left perceived stability for themselves and their family. They left respect with the world. They, they left their family obligations, and their family obligations changed because they went into this itinerant ministry. And they experienced mocking from the world. Every time the Pharisees came up and tempted Jesus Christ, the disciples are there in the background receiving the scorn that these men would give to him. The hatred of the world towards Christ was directed at them as well. And so, as Peter asked this question, I think we should sense a little bit of the truthfulness of the claim that Peter and the twelve, in a special way that not every disciple is called to, they experienced loss for the kingdom of heaven's sake, to follow after Jesus. But this isn't even in comparison to the future of what they're going to suffer. These apostles, all of these men, are going to suffer terrible things for the sake of Christ. They're going to experience absolute hatred by their own kin, their own countrymen, after the flesh. Isn't this the same thing that broke the Apostle Paul's heart when he considered his countrymen after the flesh? They they hated him. And the same with the twelve. All of them 
would experience fear at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, so much so that they go into a room and lock the doors to hide themselves in fear of the Roman government and the Jewish Sanhedrin. All would suffer mocking. And as we go into the book of Acts, every single one of these men experience beatings. And that's not something we think about. Again, when we read through the Bible, we read that the apostles were brought forth and they were beaten. Can you imagine such a thing taking place? That a group of men drag you somewhere and they take rods and they beat you for what you profess in your religion. All would it suffer not only just beatings and mockings, but imprisonment, shame. And 11 of the 12 of them will be martyred, brutally murdered for their faith. These 12 men, we should see the truthfulness of Peter's statement in question here. They truly had forsaken all to follow Jesus. But as we consider the great suffering of the apostles, what's kind of implicit in our text is it's not just the 12 apostles that are called to suffer when we enter into the life of faith in Jesus Christ. All Christians will experience great suffering. Even Philippians chapter 1 says that God grants us to suffer. He graces it to us. He graces Christians to suffer. All of us are called to forsake the world. All of us are called to forsake the world. And this apostolic connection, the apostles forsook everything and were persecuted and slandered. We see this apostolic connection in 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you'll turn there with me. It's a familiar text to us. But again, what I want us to see here today is the context that the question is asked is a context that all Christians relate to. We are all... Suffering to some degree for our profession of faith in Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 10 through 12. We see, talking to Timothy, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. And what I want us to warn us of, brothers, as I look around the room and we talk about our self-suffering, it can seem a little bit disingenuous, right? We live in a, a rich and wealthy nation. We don't, we don't experience the kind of persecution that is experienced in China and other places of the world. But brothers and sisters, I'm just here to tell you that the persecution that the Bible talks about is not a kind of persecution where we just experience the most radical kinds of persecution of beatings and death. The Bible tells us that every Christian man and woman in this world, when we enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, we enter into a state where the world hates us and persecution comes after us. Now, the degree of that persecution might vary, but brothers and sisters, if you name the name of Christ, I want you to see here that you have forsaken the world. This is not a call to to radicalism. To sell your house and everything you own. The call is for you to realize that the losses that you experience in your Christian life are normal. And what do I mean by that? I'm going to try to put that together a little bit for us in practical ways. 
the first thing we ought to realize is theologically, this must be the case. We were once united and in Adam. And while we were in Adam, the world loved us because we were just like the world. But now that we're in Jesus Christ, the hatred that the world has towards our Savior, it naturally must come to us. There's no other way about it. If the world hates the head, it's going to hate the body as well. There's enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, and that plays itself out even in the New Testament era. Now, few may be beaten and few may be martyred, Probably none of us in this room ever will be. But I want to tell you, brothers and sisters, we have all left something for Christ. We've all, we may all experience material loss for the kingdom of Christ. Now, while we might not have our houses seized by the government, I want us to realize in small ways, because of our decision to follow Christ, there's a loss of wealth that happens to many of us. For example, there's brothers in this room that have chose to join the ministry and chosen less lucrative vocations to do that. Now, there's blessings associated with that that far more make up than the material benefits, but that is a real thing. There's women and families here that value discipling your children, okay, to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, and you value that, and so you have forsaken Secular vocation, perhaps, in order to fulfill your obedience to Jesus Christ. But all these material things, I think that they're subsided. The Bible speaks mostly about our sacrifice, the things that we lose as social loss. What do I mean by that? Jesus clearly calls us to forsake our mother and brother and fathers and sisters and wives also that we might follow after him. And again, brothers and sisters, while some of us might experience some material loss because of our obedience to Christ, I would say, I think boldly, that all of us have experienced some social loss because of following Jesus Christ. This enmity that we have with the world is, is clear to us. And I think especially, if you think about this week, gathering with family. I mean, isn't it true that there's some people in your family that you just can't talk with like you used to because you're a follower of Christ. There's some things that just can't be brought up and you know in the back of your mind because you profess Christ and you follow him and your family knows it, they don't really have very much respect for you or your opinions or the things that you have to say. Now, that might be small compared to the apostolic suffering, but brothers and sisters, strained or lost family relations because of our choice to follow Christ is real loss. And the Savior looks compassionately upon us in that. We've lost respect of our peers, and this is unavoidable if one tries to live godly in a world that hates God. Okay. I just want to merely say that we all have losses and we should expect losses because we name the name of Jesus Christ. This is an unavoidable outcome and we should not be surprised by it. And in the midst of all this loss, which for some of us is very painful, probably for all of us, we think about how our family relations are strained or how our friends have left us. We might ask with Peter, 
we've forsaken much. We've lost something for following after you. What shall we have? Okay? There's an appropriate way that we, should, we can ask that without thinking that God owes us something. All right? And what I want us to notice is that Jesus Christ, in his grace and mercy, condescends to Peter and to us to give us an answer. He doesn't have to. And there's a sense, I think it's true in this, that when Peter asked the question, what then shall we have? Jesus could have rightfully said, that's none of your business. That's none of your concern. Maybe you'll have nothing. We should see that God condescends to us to encourage us in the midst of our loss and to prepare us to lose more for the kingdom of heaven's sake. God in Jesus Christ in this text condescends to us in goodness. And what I'm trying to get at is this, that God doesn't owe anybody in this room. He owes no man anything. In fact, if we consider who God is as the infinite creator of all things, who needs nothing, who doesn't need my worship or my obedience or my praise or anything, when we consider him and then consider who we are, dust, life breathed into us by the, the spirit of God, when we consider that, it's, it's impossible that God would be in my debt. It's not possible that God would ever owe me any kind of reward. And therefore, we must put that completely out of our minds and recognize that everything that comes in verses 28 and 29, the rewards that we experience, is pure grace. Pure grace from God. Our relationship of the creation to the creator is enough to elicit our obedience. God does not owe us any kind of reward as an encouragement, a carrot to bring us along the way. In fact, a proper response to God's commands to us. I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 17. This is a powerful text. Luke chapter 17. I hope I'm not all over the place today. As you're turning there, I want you to see, my main goal is for you to see that God gives us rewards because he's gracious. Because the proper response of man to his creator is this, Luke 17, verses 7 through 10. Notice what Christ says. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him once he is coming from the field, come at once and recline at table? Will he not rather say, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? The answer you're supposed to say is no. He doesn't thank the servant for doing the thing he's commanded. This servant, that's his job. It's his vocation to do those things. Notice his conclusion. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. It is an improper motivation in the Christian life to obey God because you perceive that rewards are coming on the merit of that reward. Okay? But God does condescend to us. And what comes into my mind is, is Miss, uh, Miss Charlotte. We give her a reward and we dangle a reward in front of her face every Lord's Day. Okay? If you sit with mommy, you're good, and you let mommy pay attention to the word being spoken, then you can have ice cream when we get home. 
regardless if you eat lunch or not. You can have ice cream when you get home. Now, does my daughter, as she's in a relationship to me, do I owe it to her to give her such a reward? I would say no. My daughter in relationship to me, she owes me obedience merely for the sake that I'm her father and I'm over her. But in grace, trying to elicit a growth in my daughter and a willingness to forsake her crazy brain for an hour a week, we give her a reward. And our father, he does the same thing to us. In tenderness, he bows down to us and says, I know that you've suffered loss and that you sometimes are weak in faith to believe that I'm good, I will offer you good rewards to encourage you in the path of obedience. Our Father knows that we are dust, and he helps our weakness by promising rewards. Now, what these rewards are are going to be talked about in verses 28 and 29. Now, I want us to see that there's a great reversal of the loss that we experience in this life. We, we lose material things. We lose social things. The things that are dearest to us in this life are at risk of always being torn away because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends and family forsake us. Mother and father can cast us out on the street. And these great losses are reversed in the rewards given by Christ. Now, I want us to first notice that in verse 28, we have what seems to be rewards given to the apostles alone, or a specific focus on the apostles. When Jesus says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, the regeneration, the new heavens and the new earth, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious thrones, you who have followed Me will sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And it is certain that the apostles themselves are going to have a, a... an elevated um, honor in the new heavens and the new earth. The 12 foundations of the city are laid by the foundations of the apostles. But I am not convinced that we should take verse 28 as only talking about the apostles. Because there are many, many promises in the Old and New Testament that says that believers are going to reign with him. In Revelation, we are told that we are going to sit on his glorious throne. All believers are going to sit on his glorious throne. In 1 Corinthians 6, we are told that the saints are going to judge the world, right? And so, in my own weakness, I'm going to apply all of this universally because I think that it would be helpful for us, okay? And it may be that verse 28 has a specific apostolic application that I don't quite grasp, but I want us to see the universal reality of these things for all Christians, okay? The first thing I want us to notice is that Jesus Christ, as he condescends to us to give us encouragement to obedience, he gives us rewards that we have presently in this life. Now, Matthew doesn't make that clear. If you look down at verses 28 and 29, you see that Matthew sets everything, and you could read it in such a way that this would all be future-oriented. That is, in the new heavens and the new earth, we're going to sit on thrones. We're going to receive houses and mothers and lands. Okay, But if we look at Matthew and Mark, two parallel passages, both of them talk about this as present realities in a very clear way. Turn with me to Mark chapter 10 and verse 30. And then we'll go to Luke chapter 18 and verse 30. Mark chapter 9, or sorry, Mark chapter 10 and verse 30. Notice 
the present reality of these rewards. The present reality of these rewards. Verse 29. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel. Notice this strong language who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. See how Mark clearly divides and bifurcates this present time, these are the rewards you'll have, and then in the age to come. And the same thing is said in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. As we consider how we are to interpret the rewards given by us by Jesus Christ, the, the analogy of faith here is very important. As we compare Scripture with Scripture, we see in Luke chapter 18, and again, verse 29 and 30. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many more time, many more, many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. So we can see very clearly that what Jesus Christ means to say to us is that you may lose things in this life, you may have real losses. But here in this present time, as you live on this side of the veil, there are true rewards given presently. And the question that we should ask is, what does that mean? What does it mean that I would get a, a hundred? Now, if you're just going to think, what's Jesus worth? A hundredfold of wives, children, lands? It, it seems to be very strange language if we're to take it literally and we might even come across thinking that this is some sort of hyper charismatic doctrine that we're going to actually receive health and wealth unendingly in this present time if we follow Jesus Christ but this really isn't the case at all and I I hope to show you very clearly that what Christ tells us is a great blessing to us so there's two possibilities that we can talk about First is what's taken by the early church almost um, with one voice, that these blessings are not physical blessings, but spiritual blessings given in the present time. That as we consider we've lost land and material things of wealth, we have gold, we have faith that is like gold that is more pre- faith that is more precious than gold in our souls. We have the joy of the Holy Spirit and communion with God that is worth more than anything that we could have. We have the blood of Jesus Christ that is more valuable than all the silver or gold or the traditions received by the fathers. We have justification, adoption, sanctification, and redemption, repentance of sin given to us. And all of these things can be seen in a spiritual way. But... I really think that what Christ is pointing at is physical. And that we may be called to let goods and kindred go, and we receive blessings in this life through the church that is given to us, through the people of God given to us. Now, I want to point that out. Notice that Jesus Christ has kind of two classes he talks about. There's lands, there's material things, but there's also family, this social relationship that we gain family that we lose in the church of Jesus Christ. Now, turn with me to to Jesus Christ's own words in Matthew chapter 12. 
Matthew chapter 12. What reward shall we have? Well, Jesus Christ tells us that anybody who has forsaken social things will receive a hundredfold in this time. Notice what Jesus Christ says. Verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside. That is, physical mothers and brothers. Mother and brothers. Asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And the question that we have is, do we, do we truly believe that? That when we are forsaken by our physical family in this world, that those who are united to through faith in Jesus Christ, we really have true family given to us. We could think further with this. Paul tells us in many instances that Jesus Christ is the firstborn among what? Many brothers. In Hebrews chapter 2, it is said that Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers. We've read in Psalm 45 many times before that we're called in the gospel call to forsake our family and our father's house to cling to Christ. When we cling to him, we get the head, but we get the body as well. We are truly family in Christ. Throughout the New Testament, we could add that Paul over and over calls us to treat one another as family. And the clearest thing that comes to my mind is 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy 5, where Paul, almost off, in an offhanded kind of way, says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him. As you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Brothers and sisters, when we, when we come together for our Thanksgiving meals in our physical families and we feel that tension and that stress and that loss that we experience and perhaps we even say in our hearts, is the gospel worth it? Is it true that I experience this loss? We must try to conform our minds to the fact that in the church, we are given true family. The curse, the the loss of this world is reversed. Our treasures are restored already before the not yet in the church of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, you're my family. And I I don't say that with any kind of trying to prove a point. And I think that all of you feel the same way. When I see you enter the God's house on the Lord's day, we truly have a bond that doesn't exist with our physical families. We've had to make very difficult decisions, me and my wife, about our will, who the girls are going to be left to if something were to happen to us. And I I would say with all boldness that we don't consider our physical family really to be an option. You're our family. We're willing to give our children to you. And I think that that's mutual here. And we should see that and, and recognize the great reward that God has given to us. That we'd be encouraged to hold loosely onto this world, even our social relationships, because we really do gain more in the church. But even with material blessings, this is reversed. Now, this is, again, when we talk about material things given to us as a reward, we get a little bit allergic, like Brother Joey would tell us. But the church is meant to give stability to those who would suffer 
loss, right? And the thing that we would see in the New Testament is an almost striking literal application of this. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Now, this is a peculiar situation that happens over and over in church history where there is great persecutions and people have their houses, their property seized. This is what's happening in the early church. The Jewish people, they come to Jesus and their families forsake them. And as I understand it, even funerals were done for those who came to Jesus Christ. They lost their families. They lost their home. They lost their inheritance as Jews. But here in Acts chapter 2, notice how that great loss is reversed. The present reward in the gospel. Notice verses 44 and 45. And all who, were, who believed were together. And notice this language. And had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now, we ought not to read that with such uh, skeptical eyes that we only see like communism or capitalism there. That's not the point of this text. The point is that the people of God loved one another so much as real true family that they were willing to give what they had to make sure their brothers and sisters were taken care of. And in chapter 4, we read the same thing, except for I think that the language is even stronger. Chapter 4 and verse 32, again, these reversals, these blessings coming upon the people of God in the present age. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. And notice this. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. It didn't cross the lips of anybody that that's mine. You better stay away from it. Okay? Rather, there was open doors, open houses. Brother, you need something, come and get it. Right? Again, brothers and sisters, listen, when we consider this text, that is the relationship that I experience in Redeemer and Covenant Church. As far as I can understand it, I know that there's open doors. If we need a bed, we need a house, we need money, that you all are there for us. And I hope you feel the same towards your brothers and sisters. But the point is this. Jesus Christ, when he talks about the rewards that are given to us, there's present realities to that. And they are gained spiritually, of course. But even materially in the church, we are given great blessings. Great blessings in the church. And these present blessings are a great encouragement for us to not cling so tightly to the things of the world that we'd be willing to suffer the loss of them, knowing, as Hebrews chapter 10 tells us, that we have a better possession and an abiding one. But these temporal present blessings that come upon the people of God in the midst of their lost, these are a, a foretaste, brothers and sisters, of the eternal blessedness and peace and rewards that all believers will have in Christ. Only a foretaste. And that's because in the gospel, as we've used this language, we have the already and the not yet. That Jesus in his kingdom has truly come and instituted the kingdom of God even on this earth and it's spreading and growing. And there's blessings that enter into this present life because of it. But in the age to come, it will be full and manifest and free. I just want you to think about the blessings that we have eternally. At our death, our physical death, we might be concerned that, that death is a 
punishment because it was given in the garden as a punishment. But for believers, I want to tell you very boldly, that death is transformed into a blessing for believers, an eternal blessing. And this is what I mean. Heidelberg Catechism says, and truly, that death is the abolishing of sin in the believer. And think about that with me. My body is the presence of sin and death in this world. And it's only at my death that I will be in glory. And as Hebrews 12 tells us, with the the righteous made perfect. My physical death in this world, there is an eternal reward and blessing that God is abolishing the body of death and setting me free from the presence of sin forever. What a wonderful eternal reward to think about. That begins in a moment. And how that should encourage us to hold loosely on the things of this life. Oh, brothers, more than that. We're told the apostles here are going to sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. As we've said, 1 Corinthians 6 tells us that the lot of believers, we are going to be raised to such an honor that we are going to judge the world and even angels. Now, what that judgment means, I don't really know. Okay? I don't know if that means that there's going to be some sort of human government set up still in the new heavens and new earth, and there's going to be judgment there. Or, as some commentators, and I think this is perhaps what's being talked about, is just as the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South, was risen up to give judgment over the cities of Judah and Jerusalem, right? Because she saw the wisdom of Solomon. She's going to be a judgment to them. Believers are going to be a judgment to the world. Those who believe the gospel are going to function as a judgment? I'm not really sure. But we are going to judge the worlds. We are going to judge angels. On that final day, as a reward eternally given to us, we are going to be vindicated. And that's precious to me. Because as I look at the world, it's a terrible, terrible thing that has happened in Colorado Springs, and we ought to mourn about it. But one of the things that, that hurts me so much is I, I, I clicked on a news article, and I read, and the first thing I read was, I know this has to do with conservative Christianity. I was shocked to read it. Plainly put into a, a paper that this is what somebody said. They know that this is the reason this happened. And brothers and sisters, we ought to long to be vindicated from the slander of the world. And on that final day, we will be vindicated from the slander of this present world where everything will be made right and everything that was said falsely against us will be made right. We have an eternal abiding inheritance that will never pass away. The people of Israel, if we consider them, they were, they were given a great inheritance, the 12 tribes. And if we look at the peak of that in the reign of Solomon... That gold was so abundant, silver wasn't even made an account of, it's going to be even greater in the kingdom of heaven, but it won't fade away. Our sin won't be there. There's no going to be any covenant of works that we have to, to work to keep it and obtain it. And most of all, and probably the pinnacle of all this, the eternal reward that we have is enjoyment of our God and Savior. That he will be our lot forever. We're going to look our Savior, our prophet, our priest, and our king in the face 
for all of eternity. And he's going to teach us the wonderful things about God and point us back to our sin and show us our salvation by grace alone for all eternity. And we're going to enjoy him and love him with a fullness of heart that we will have no corruption to hinder. These are great promises, brothers and sisters. And these are given, these rewards are given to encourage us to lose all for the sake of Jesus Christ. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. I I think that we're going to save the parable for next week. Okay, So please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. As we consider the, the blessing of God to give us rewards, the free grace offered in it. Hebrews 11. I want us to notice how Moses... How Moses lived differently, looking at the rewards that God promised. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, notice this refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Notice this, for he was looking to the reward. There is strong encouragement here for us, brothers and sisters, by way of application and closing, that when we read these rewards, that we would dwell on the goodness and grace of them. That we would really see that God has promised these things and that we would set our eyes upon them. That God has promised in this present time to give me many more things than I would lose in the church of Jesus Christ. And that should encourage us. That in the coming age there are blessings innumerable and unfathomable to us. Even as 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us, right? That it's neither entered into the heart of man those things that God has prepared for those who love him. The rewards of God given should be so believed by us and cultivate a belief of them as true reality, more concrete than our physical world to encourage us to live for him. Not because we're going to earn or that God owes us rewards because we do it, but that we would simply seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and believe that all these things will be added to us. Because he's promised it. God is good and he gives us great promises and we're called to cling to them by faith to help us on our path to eternal life. Brother Joey, would you come forward?